Psalm 107. Let's go over to Psalm 107. Now, at this point of the evening, you're already thinking, okay, uh, we're here for a Thanksgiving Eve service, so the pastor's job is to tell us things are tough, but be thankful. So, things are tough, be thankful. I did it. Now we're going to spend some time with Psalm 107 and uh, look at something that I really has been very precious to me in preparing for you tonight. I, I found this to be refreshing, and uh, I trust it will be for you too. It's a little bit different uh, in that uh, I'll be doing a little bit of reading to you tonight, and I hope that I, I do well with that. Um, but Psalm 107, look at the first two verses. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I just love that phrase. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's something that uh, I know we all need practice in. Saying so. I mean, shouldn't we be giving thanks? Yes. But it's not about the thanks, folks. It's really about the Lord. The emphasis, if we put it on the Lord. Notice the Psalms just do this naturally. He is good. His loving kindness. It just starts talking time after time about his attributes and his actions toward us. And and if you look at the Psalms rather than look at it as, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, give thanks or such like that. But rather look again at the text and see, what is the Lord doing? The thanks comes natural for the redeemed. The redeemed should say so. And so, I, that's just a side note. That's not in my notes. I just thought I'd give you that for free. Um, the last part of the chapter as well, travel all the way down to verse number 43. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. I'm going to bring that up again tonight. All right? Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are going to open up your word here tonight and study from it a little while and to look upon the things that you have done. And uh, I pray that our hearts will be in tune with your Spirit's work, that uh, we would be quick and ready to receive from you uh, just instruction of who you are and how great you are and what you have done for us, that our giving thanks is a spontaneous response to another glimpse of you. So as we spend our time tonight in this beautiful passage, direct our eyes to the one who sits on the throne above and let us be still, just like the song said, let us be still. You are our God. What a great thing to say. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read to you Psalm 107, 23-32. I'm going to read it to you from the Geneva Bible. Alright, now you say Geneva Bible. That's coming back from the 1500s. Alright, that's a long ways back. Um, and this Geneva Bible, 
I have the script in front of me here. They don't spell English words like we do. If uh, Mia, you graded this, you'd mark every other word wrong. The spelling is just terrible. They spell go, G-O-E. I mean, that would get you in trouble. Uh, they don't use uh, use, they use V's. So up is spelled V-P. All right. It takes a little while for your brain to get wrapped around this. Most of these words end with an E, like the word Lord, L-O-R-D-E. Um, deep, D-E-E-P-E. And there's lots of words like that. And so sometimes it takes a little while to to follow through with this uh, and read it the right way. And here's the other puzzle I have. If they're using a V for the U, why are they using a U for the V? And they do that too, because loving is spelled L-O-U-I-N-G. So, aren't you glad you live in this century and not back then? I'm going to try to read it to you. And you could follow along. Uh, Psalm 107, 23 through 32. You'll see it sounds a lot alike to what you have in front of you. They that go down to the sea in ships and occupy by the great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind and it lifted up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven and descend yet to the deep so that their soul melted for trouble. They are tossed to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and all their cunning is gone. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble and he bringeth them out of their distress. He turned to the storm and calmed so that the waves thereof are still. When they are quieted, they are glad, and he bringeth them unto the haven where they would be. Let them therefore confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men, and let them exalt him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. I read that to you because that is the Bible of the pilgrims. 1500s, the 1600s, 1700s, and all the way up to around 1860. It was the most popular uh, Bible translation being read in the English tongue. If Psalm 107 were a series of small vignettes mounted on a wall, I want you to picture for a minute, a blank wall and several picture frames on it. And above all those picture frames, I want you to picture in your mind a very bold statement written for the purpose of all those vignettes. And it says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. For His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And you see frame number one underneath that statement. And frame number one is a picture of a wanderer. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's fainting. And he's looking for a city. You picture him? 
Frame number one. That's verses four through nine. Frame number two. A picture of a prisoner. He's in misery. He's in chains and shame. And he's looking for mercy. Can you see him? Verses 10 through 16. Frame number three. It's a picture of a fool. He's rebellious. He is sinful. And he's nearing death. And he's looking for healing and deliverance. Verse 17 to verse 22. And then the fourth frame. It's a sailor. A sailor tossed by the waves, losing his courage, staggering, looking for a harbor. Verse 23 through 32. Each frame, you picture them, the wanderer, the prisoner, you've got them in your mind, you've got the fool there, you've got the sailor in your mind under this great banner about the loving kindness of the Lord. Each one, picture their face. A face of desperation, a face of despair, the look of doom, whatever you color that with, is etched on that face. And were it not for the Lord... They would all have a very unhappy ending to their story. Yet in each case, if you go through this psalm, because it records these four cases, and in each case it says, Then they cried out to the Lord. And in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. Each story ends with an appeal. Each picture has these phrases underneath it. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness. Now, you've got a picture in your mind of Psalm 107. And what it looks like. And how it's divided up. And and there's no need to record the events of the distressed. There's a need to show them, yes, crying out to the Lord in their trouble. There's a need for them to give thanks to the Lord... For his loving kindness. These things are necessary. Yes. They're recorded. And they're reviewed. The reminders. If I, I wanted a good word for this. The reminders of those who take the time and look at those pictures. To reflect upon them and say. You know what? That could be my story too. My picture could be up here. As one of these two. And I'm nothing more than a display of the Lord's mercy as well. I hope that we never become callous to the stories of history that mark the goodness of God. We do know we're living in an era now where they're scratching out a lot of the historical stories that have reminded us of how good our Lord has been to us in all these years. Abraham Lincoln had that fear. Did you know that? 1860, he had the fear that we would forget our God. This was his statement, he said. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, in wealth, and power, but we have forgotten God. 
We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched us and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. What a statement that is. What a statement that is. I, I want to take you for a little while here tonight to frame number four. Remember who was in frame number four? The sailor. Tossed by the waves, losing his courage, staggering, looking for a harbor. Keep, keep your eyes on these verses as I go through that. Look especially at verse 25 and 26 for a minute. Look at these two verses. You see them before you right now? 25 and 26. Storm winds, the waves, they go up, they go down. The storm has come upon the ocean waters. The wave lifts, lifts their ship higher and higher. It's ready as if it's going to launch them right up into the sky when suddenly the wave gives and retreats and they're looking down into this huge cavern of water. And the ship falls as if it were to hit the bottom of the sea. I explained that once in a, in a sermon, and one of the elderly men came up to me. He had served in the Coast Guard for many years, and he was off the East Coast somewhere. He said he learned to love shrimp, uh, but he was telling me, you know how that feels on a ship, to be lifted up that high, and suddenly the wave is gone, and you're suspended in the air, and you come dropping down to the water. And the words here is that, when it, 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 the, the most seasoned sailor has his soul melt in him. That's quite a picture. His soul melts away. He reels. He staggers as if he's drunk. He doesn't have an answer for his plight. He can't still the storm and he can't still his heart. He cries out. Three simple words, probably. Peter used them. Lord, save me! And instantly, notice, even in this psalm, instantly in verse number 29, the storm is stilled. Wouldn't that have been interesting to have been in the boat with the disciples the day Jesus did that too? Rebuke the wind and calm the seas, and it stopped. I think, wow, what a display of what God is able to do. He says, Lord, save me. And instantly the storm is stilled. The waves are hushed. And he finds his way to the harbor. Now, do you think upon landing that this man would get out and get down on his knees and thank the Lord for his loving kindness? And then go and tell everybody. Because they love to talk, don't they? About what the Lord has done to preserve His life. 
Now, I want to take that picture. You just saw it in the scriptures, and you know it's been repeated upteen times. Not just in the recording of God's word, but in the lives of so many. that The Lord has done such things like this for them. And I want you to jump in history to this day. This, this year, do you know that we marked the 400th anniversary of the landing of the pilgrims? This year is the 400th anniversary when they harbored in Plymouth, Massachusetts, 1620. We talk about Thanksgiving because that took place the following year in 1621 in November is when they celebrated what we call the first Thanksgiving celebration. They had great reasons to give thanks. For history's sake, and and even just to simply reflect on the loving kindness of our Lord, I want to review the story with you tonight. All right? I want to walk you through the story of the Mayflower. I think you're going to find this fascinating. Uh, We start with a group called the Puritans. Now, much of what I'm going to read to you, yes, I I first pulled it up on Wikipedia, but I compared it with other Christian sources to make sure we got it accurate, and this is what I came across, and I've worked it up so I could actually make it readable and help you with this. But uh, in this, the story itself is just fascinating. Differing from their contemporaries, the Puritans who sought to reform and purify the Church of England chose to separate themselves from the Church of England because they believed that it was beyond redemption due to its Roman Catholic past and the Church's resistance to reform, which forced them to pray in private. Persecution from the king and the Church led to several of their pastors or theologians, being hanged for their views. Starting in 1608, a group of English families left England for Holland, where they could worship freely. Still, they felt as though they were unable to worship as they desired. By 1620, a community determined to cross the Atlantic for America, which they considered a new promised land where they would establish the Plymouth Colony. Each family had to raise the funds for the voyage and the supplies needed, both on the trip and in the establishing of a home in America. This was an enormous task, since several of them had escaped England with only the clothes on their back. Life in Holland became increasingly difficult for that congregation. They were forced into menial and backbreaking jobs, such as cleaning wool, which led to a variety of health afflictions. In addition, a number of the country's leading theologians began engaging in open debates, which led to civil unrest, instilling the fear that Spain might again place Holland's population under siege, as it had done years earlier. Well, England's king, James I, subsequently formed an alliance with Holland against Spain with a condition outlawing independent English church congregations in Holland. Thus formed the separatist motivating factor to sail for the New World, 
with the benefit of being beyond the reach of King James and his bishops. Two ships were secured. Should I start trivia right now? You know one of them. What's that? No. Speedwell. One was called Speedwell and the other was the Mayflower. Now, not all of the separatists were able to depart. As many did not have enough time to settle their affairs and their budgets, they were too meager to buy the necessary travel supplies. The congregation therefore decided that the younger and stronger members should go first, with others possibly following in the future. When it was time to leave, the ship's senior leader, Edward Winslow, described the scene of families being separated at the departure. Quote, A flood of tears was poured out. Those not sailing accompanied us to the ship, but were not able to speak to one another for the abundance of sorrow before parting. William Bradford also wrote this, Truly doleful was the sight of the sad and mournful parting, to see what sighs and sobs and prayers did sound among them, what tears did gush from every eye, and pithy speeches pierced each heart, their reverend pastor falling down on his knees, and they all with him. The Speedwell carried the Puritans down to Southampton, England, to join the Mayflower. There, 132 passengers and crew boarded the two ships and began their journey August the 5th, 1620. Most of August and September were given to repairing three separate leaks in the Speedwell. They only gained 200 miles of travel until they needed to return to abandon the Speedwell. They put a lot of money into that and it didn't work. Some of the passengers moved to the Mayflower and others just decided to go back to Holland. The Mayflower was overcrowded. They waited for seven more days until the wind picked up. William Bradford was especially worried. We lie here waiting for a, as fair a wind as can blow. Our victuals will be half eaten up, I think, before we go from the coast of England. And if our voyage lasts long, we shall not have a month's victuals when we come to the country. The Mayflower's flowers provisions were already quite low, when departing Southampton, and they became lower still by delays of more than a month. The passengers had been on board the ship this entire time. How do you feel when the power is out for two hours? Two months. They sat on the ship waiting for it to leave. Imagine that. It just amazes me. The passengers had been on board the ship this entire time, feeling worn out and in no condition for this very taxing, lengthy Atlantic journey, cooped up in cramped spaces of a small ship. The living quarters for the 102 passengers were cramped, with the living area, now picture this, the living area for all 102 passengers was 80 feet by 20 feet. The ceiling was five feet high. If you were taller than that, you never stood up. 
With couples and children packed closely together for a trip lasting two months, a great deal of trust and confidence was required among everybody of the Lord. The maximum possible space for each person would have been slightly less than the size of a standard single bed. When the Mayflower sailed from Plymouth alone on September 16th, In 1620, it had a prosperous wind. The first half of the voyage proceeded over calm seas and under pleasant skies. But then the weather changed. With continuous northeasterly storms hurling themselves against the ship and huge waves constantly crashing against the topside deck. In the midst of one storm, the servant of physician Samuel Fuller died and was buried at sea. A baby was also born, and they named it Oceanus Hopkins. During another storm, so fierce that the sails could not be used, the ship was forced to drift without hoisting its sails for days, or else risk losing their mast. The storm washed a male passenger, John Holland, overboard. He had sunk about 12 feet until a crew member threw out a rope when Holland managed to grab and he was safely pulled back on board. The passengers were forced to crouch in semi-darkness below deck as ocean swells rose to over a 100 feet. With waves tossing the boat in different directions, men held on to their wives, who themselves held on to their children. Water was soaking everyone and everything above and below the deck. In mid-ocean, The ship came so close to being totally disabled and may have returned to England or risk sinking. A storm had so badly damaged the main beam that even the sailors despaired. By a stroke of luck, that's Wikipedia's words, we have a different way of saying this, right? By God's grace, one of the colonists had a metal jack screw that he had purchased in Holland to help with the construction of the new settlers' homes. They used it to secure the beam, which kept it from cracking further, thus maintaining the seaworthiness of the vessel. All told, despite the crowding, unsanitary conditions, and seasicknesses, there was only one fatality during the voyage. After a grueling ten weeks at sea, the Mayflower reached America, dropping anchor in what would be called Massachusetts on November 21st. 1620. Now you would think that the hardest part of the experience was over. William Bradford wrote when the pilgrims stepped ashore, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell on their knees and blessed the God of heaven who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth, their proper element. The new residents of Plymouth faced many difficulties during the first winter, the most notable being the risk of starvation and the lack of suitable shelter. The pilgrims had no way of knowing that the ground would be frozen by the middle of December, making it impossible to do any planting. Nor were they prepared for the snowstorms that would make the countryside impassable without snowshoes. And in their haste to leave, they did not think to bring any fishing rods. 
During the winter, the passengers remained on board Mayflower. Did you know that? That surprised me when I read that. I said, really? They spent the entire winter on the ship, suffering an outbreak from a contagious disease described as a mixture of scurvy, pneumonia, and tuberculosis. After it was over, only 53 passengers remained. Just over half. 78% of the women who have traveled on the Mayflower had perished that winter. Half of the crew died as well. According to eyewitness accounts, among the pilgrims who survived, there were 22 men, just four women, and over 25 children and teenagers. In the spring, they built huts ashore, and the passengers disembarked the Mayflower March 31st. 1621. And Bradford stated this, Friends, if ever we make a plantation, God works a miracle, especially considering how scant we shall be of vittles, and most of all, ununited among ourselves and devoid of good tutors and leaders, violence will break all. I see not in reason how we shall escape even the grasping of hunger-starved persons but God can do much, and His will be done. Spring and summer were difficult months of clearing land, building shelters, burying the dead, and learning to plant. Without the help of the local Indians to teach them food gathering and other survival skills, all of the colonists may have perished. A year later, November 16, 21, they celebrated the colony's first fall harvest along with the Indian people, which centuries later is described as the first Thanksgiving Day. Now you are probably mindful, as you were told in your school's history class, I hope, that the pilgrims signed a compact. Remember? The Mayflower Compact. And they signed that in November of 1620. The year before the, the Thanksgiving celebration and, and many months before they ever got off the ship. I'm going to read the modern version of it for just a minute. In the name of God, Amen. We, whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, a voyage, to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. And by virtue hereof do enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and officers from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient to the general good of the colony, unto which we promised 
all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, in the reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 45th, and then they sign it 1620. 300 years later, which was only 100 years ago, during that anniversary of the 300th uh, celebration of the landing of the Mayflower, a governor by the name of Calvin Coolidge, before he ever became president, had an address, and this is what he said. The compact which they signed was an event of the greatest importance. It was the foundation of liberty based on law and order, and that tradition has been steadily upheld. They drew up a form of government which has been designated as the first real constitution of modern times. It was democratic, an acknowledgement of liberty under law and order, and giving to each person the right to participate in the government while they promised to be obedient to the laws. But the really wonderful thing was that they had the power and the strength of character to abide by it and to live by it from that day to this. Some governments are better than others, but any form of government is better than anarchy, and any attempt to tear down government is an attempt to wreck civilization. Is that an interesting phrase? I think it's a statement that needs to be read still today. Our generation needs to hear these things. But let me go back to a statement I read previously. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell upon their knees and blessed the God of heaven. Go back to Psalm 107. Look at these words again in verse 23 through 32. Those who go down to the ship and sea, or the sea and ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord, and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their souls melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. They cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed and they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the Son of Man. Verse 1, remember, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting, and let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Now, I'm not going to try to apply this to you this evening, because your picture might be on one of those frames. Or you have your own frame. And your own experience, in one way or another, I think all of us could put up a picture frame here tonight and say, I remember the kindness and goodness of my Lord. But I take you rather to the challenge that is at the end of that story. Verse 43. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things. 
and consider the loving kindnesses of the Lord. I'm going to let you answer that question. Who is wise? Who is wise? I hope it's us. You obviously know the story of history is bound to be repeated by those who don't learn it. There's a good phrase that says it that way. I don't know if you've remembered the story of the Mayflower. But after reading that through, I said, Wow! Would I have traded places with them? No. No, I would not. A lot of people wouldn't trade places with me. Or with you. Or what might be your picture on the wall. But if they looked at our story, if they looked at your story, and if they looked at my story, what are the words written above it? The words written below it? Does it speak about the kindness of our God? And does it call the wise to look at it and think about the loving kindness of our Lord? That's why we tell our story. So that people can hear it. Then the Lord will move. What great things we see. If we keep our mouth shut, how's the next generation ever going to hear? I leave that in your lap tonight. Think about that. Go back to verse 43 several times and ask, what is wise? What is wise? Am I one of them? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the people of courage that we have in our history books. We thank you, Lord, for those who depended upon you completely. They had nothing they could fall back on but you. They had nothing to light their way but you. They had nothing in their hands, but you had them in your hands. And they forged away. And they made a country out of this, this, this chunk of land. We have passed through 400 years now, Lord. 400 years because of the courage of 120-some people. Lord, thank you for those who have gone before us, but mostly thank you for the evidence of your loving kindness. For there we see again a picture of our God. We rejoice. We rejoice in what we have seen. May our hearts just be prompt to say how great you are. May we be like those of verse 2, the redeemed of the Lord, who say so. Work in our hearts, Lord. For if we stay quiet, how are the generations here? Thank you for the example set before us tonight. And we do ask that you bless our day as we celebrate tomorrow. May we often return back to the reason for it and the history behind it. And may we enter worship of you with thankful hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.